you for your grace and your mercy today. Pray that your word will open up our hearts and, and mind to the glory of the meaning and the meaning of it. Lord, we need your spirit today, not only to teach it, to hear it. And Lord, once we leave, to do it. Please help us, Lord, not to fall into a grievous error that we could just hear it and pretend that that's all we need to do. Please keep us from that, Lord, and enable us by your spirit to do it and empower us, Lord, to do it effectively unto you and to your people to serve them, Lord. We ask you for your kindness in which we stand, Lord, your grace in which we stand today. We ask you, Lord, to help us and apply this word to our lives. And that, Lord, make us proclaimers of this good news as we're learning something so unique, something that you gave Paul we thank you that you gave us this wonderful, wonderful teaching in the book of Romans. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most famous passages probably in all the New Testament is chapter 3, verse 21. Let's go there and let's read 21 through 26 through the writings of our beloved Apostle Paul. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Very important. Those prepositions are very important through faith. This was, to the demonst- this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just or fair, so the word fair, and the justifier of the person who has faith in Jesus. Those five verses will take us the entire rest of the service because it's so packed with amazing truth that I think as Christians, we ought to know it. And I think sometimes this is the the dangerous part for Christians to come to church is to tune off because I have heard it so many times. I'm inoculated. I I don't, Pastor, what can you tell? I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've heard this before many times. And sometimes we tune off because we, we think we know it. We make an assumption that we know it. And it's good to know it. It's good to be reminded. And if the reminder and the knowing leads you to action, that's where the power is. The power is in the action that is caused by the Holy Spirit making this real in your life. Not just words, not black and white letters, but an imprint in your heart and a motivation to please God and please others. That's what the Holy Spirit wants from us today is to know it and then go and apply it in our lives And if there's promises, if there's warnings, if there's application that needs to be done, then that's where the power is. That's where the Lord steps in. But it's a pivot to what Paul has been saying, because from chapter 1 through chapter 3, you know this already because you've been with us already, the sins of man and the wrath of God. Oh, he's been talking about sin. He's been letting us know that all have sinned. He's been letting us know that all men are guilty. He's been letting us know that there is a judgment. But he's also going to now pivot or shift from this point on to about chapter five. It's all about justification. And if you have a pen, which I encourage you or a highlighter, you can highlight the main themes or the main words that are used. This is what you do in a Bible study. Christians have to know how to do Bible studies. Amen. 
Christians ought to know how to do Bible studies and be able to do Bible studies with other people. If you've been a Christian for at least five years, you ought to know this, highlight, and tell others about it. If you've been a Christian for 20 years and you don't know how to do it, something has gone wrong for the past 20 years, meaning you haven't been able to apply these things in your life. Very important. Because this is one thing you could do. Look at the keywords, and you're going to see some keywords here. And you can highlight them, and you can shout them out, and you can say, oh, there's a keyword right there. One of the keywords here that's going to be here for the next two chapters is the word faith. Faith. F-A-F-A-I-T-H. Faith. You'll see it come up often. And before you say, I already know what that means, we'll tell you what it means based on the Scripture, not the Webster's Dictionary or the Oxford Dictionary, based on the New Testament writings, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and see if we have the right one. Because sometimes we assume we have the right one, and then we pretend, oh, I know it. And then we read it again and go, oh, I guess I didn't know. And then that's where the power is. It's when we apply the word. But is there, ans- is there an answer for the sins of man and the wrath of God? Yes. The answer is justification. And that's another key word that's going to come up. Justified. And as, of course, Paul is relating us to the gospel. Because the gospel is hostile to sin. The gospel is hostile to sin because it first lets us know what sin is. You have to know the bad news before you can become part of the good news. And the bad news is we're guilty. We're guilty. And that a person needs to know before anything else. This is why Paul, for three chapters, and it's been, um, it hasn't, it hasn't, I can't say it's depressing because we have to know the truth, but it's, it's been going on and on for three chapters. It feels like, Pastor, are you ever going to tell us the good news? I'm already feeling guilty. Yes, that's the point. It is the point that Paul is trying to say. He's writing to Christians, by the way. The book of Romans was written to Christians. Was it written for the atheists or the Satanists or anything like that? It was written to Christians to know that we're guilty. And there's things that a Christian needs to know or people need to know. Number one, that God is our creator. That's Romans 1. We've been reading that. God is our creator. Therefore, if God is our creator, we owe him our worship, and we owe him thanks for creating us, and also the fact that we know that there's a God because he revealed in nature himself. We can know that there is a God through nature. And another one, your conscience. You know that there's a God through nature and your conscience. Because we know what right and wrong is, which is the second part is God is our judge. We're to know that in chapter two. God is our judge. How do we know that? Because God has done two things in revelation of what is wrong and what is right. He's given us his law, which is in writing. And the Jews had that. And they were supposed to proclaim it to the world. But somebody honestly could say, well, I'm not a Jew and I never heard of this. You know, God can't. Guilt me because I wasn't a Jew and I didn't have the Old Testament law of Moses. Well, there's no excuse because God has done a second thing. He's put the law into your heart and conscience so you know what right and wrong is. How do you know what right and wrong is? Because you know. When somebody does something wrong, you judge it. Somebody does something wrong to you. Don't you get mad about it? Why? Because you know you're not supposed to do that. But how do you know you're not supposed to do that? Because something in us, our conscience and our heart, bears witness that that was wrong. And that's when God says, he will judge you based on how you judged others. If you judged others for what they did wrong to you, then God will say, huh, you know what right and wrong is then. 
And if you did what is right, because you know what is right and wrong, because you get mad when people have done something wrong to you, if you know what right and wrong is, are you faithful to do always right? And the answer to that is no. We don't do always right. We're a mixed bag. We are created to do good, but we do wrong at times. At times we do good, at times we do wrong. It's a mixed bag. And therefore, the standard that God has for entering into his kingdom is always do good. Consistently, 24 hours, seven days a week, do good and, and not do wrong. And therefore, if that's the standard, we are all guilty. And nobody's getting in. That's, that's been chapter 3 up to verse 20. All of us have sinned. And I told you last time, right, that even up to the point where the Jews would say, we have the law, we have great men of God. I, told, I pointed out that the, even the men of God, David, the man after God's own heart, said, Lord, that's your mercy. I couldn't do it. I have sinned. And he did that. He wrote that when he sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba. And so the, even the best Jew could not maintain his total righteousness of himself before God by doing good. He could not do it. And the Psalms tells us, you know, that's lovely Psalms that you love. The Psalms even tell us that there's not good. Not one does good. And the idea there of doing good is consistently doing good. Because somebody can say, well, I've done good. I took dinner to someone else. I took care of the cat. I didn't kick the TV this week. I, I was good. I did good. But said, so do you consistently do that all the time? And that is what the standard that God allows. And the answer is absolutely not. So therefore, we're all guilty, and we will stand before God, because the other thing we know, that God is our judge, and he will judge us for what we know what is right and wrong, and because we didn't do what is right all the time, we're all under that guilt and condemnation. And so therefore, people get really depressed about this point, which is a good thing, because it's the conviction of the Holy Ghost coming into the person's heart to say, I'm not who I'm correct. You know, I'm not, I'm not who I am supposed to be. I know that there's more. I know I ought to do more, but I can't because I'm trapped in this sinful state. And that is true. So how can God possibly take us to heaven? How can God possibly ever forgive a person who's guilty, which we all are? How can he do that? The answer is in this little preposition. You see that? It's the first letter or the first word in your verse that we just started. Verse 21. The word is, but, but, but now. And if you ever do a study on the B-U-T's, right, the B-U-T's, they are wonderful, wonderful verses you'll find. Or the but of the Bible. That sounds bad, isn't it? But it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. What is it? Means that there is a change that happens. Now this is something new. Paul is going to introduce something that he has not talked about. He has not talked about Jesus yet until now. He has related to us as sinful people that knowing what to do that's good, don't do it. And therefore, guilty in the sight of God, guilty before God, guilty before ourselves because we played the hypocrite. We know that is right. We know that we should be doing this, but we don't. And therefore, God says, well, I will judge you for that. But, but now. Something has changed. By the way, in the book of Luke, you'll find another but. That is a wonderful but that you need to find out. Luke 23, Jesus had died, and he had went into the grave, and everybody was depressed. The beginning of chapter 24 says, but now it was the third day, and Jesus rose again. But now. 
Another one that is very famous, at least we ought to know it, is in Ephesians chapter 2. We're all sin, right? We're all sin. We're dead in our transgressions. We, have, we are the children of wrath. Paul makes it very clear. But God, who is rich in mercy, he has saved us and he has called us. And through grace and by grace through faith, we're saved, right? So, but God steps in. So something unique is going to be introduced here. And that is now how God is going to clear the guilty. Something has happened in history. And what happened in history? Apart from the law of righteousness uh, of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So here's one word that has been introduced right away. You highlight it. This is how you do your Bible study. You highlight that word and you go find out what it is. What is righteousness? Since we've been studying this for a few months already, you would understand that righteousness means right standing with God or always doing what is right or God and you are okay. There's nothing between you and God. Well, God has a righteousness, right? And he is righteous. I mean, he always does what is right. Never wrong. He's always fair. He's always just, and he's always right. So how can a God of righteousness make unrighteous people righteous? Well, it says apart from the law. Did you see that part right there? Apart from the law, his righteousness is going to be revealed. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, this verse here. The righteousness of God is going to be revealed to you. Not the law, because the law cannot make you righteous. The law cannot make you right with God. I know there's, you can ask anybody outside this church, you know, you can go outside and say, How, what makes a good Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian? And there would be the people that would say, if you keep the Ten Commandments, that makes you a Christian. I said, wow, it's interesting how people would gauge being a Christian based on the Ten Commandments. I said, well, do you know any good Christians? That's the next question, right? If the, if the, if the standard is the Ten Commandments, do you know any good Christian? Anybody here a good Christian based on the Ten Commandments? Christians? No, keeping the Ten Commandments? Oh, boy. That's, a, that's an interesting thing, right? But that's the standard, right, we, that we think it's what makes a Christian a Christian. But what does the Bible say here? It's not, the not denying that the law is bad. It's saying that apart from the law, God can make somebody right. That is a unique thing that we Christians don't appreciate too much because we live in the New Testament era. If you were living in the Old Testament era, you'd be puzzled. Say, Why can, how can God make people right without his law? There's something bigger, something better. Something that has come about. That's what the word but's there. Something new has been revealed. And that is so unique in that in the past, the law of God has been there to maintain people in right behavior. But it never was to make people right before God. It was never meant to be the standard of righteousness that you ought to have. It was meant to show you who God is and who you're not. Right? You're not righteous and he is. The law was a tutor to maintain the Old Testament people, the Old Testament saints, the people of Israel, to be maintained within parameters of God's standard, right? meaning that God made a parameter regarding sin. This is not right. You don't go beyond this. Right? And he, as a tutor, maintained Israel within certain parameters. But then that tutor, or that pedagogus is what the Bible uses, is supposed to point you to a person can make you right. Because you can stand in the law and say, well, I know I'm not right. I keep 
hearing it that I'm not right. So what makes me right? What can possibly make me right with God? Not the law. The law simply guilted you. you know, I don't know if you ever met somebody like that. That Every time you met them, they just pointed out that you're wrong. Maybe they're not your friends anymore. But the law is like that. You know, they basically, you get no mercy from the law. You get no grace from the law. You simply are guilty. And then the more you get close to the law, the more you try to maintain the law, the more of a lawbreaker you become because you realize how unable you are to maintain it and to keep it. You maybe do good for a day or two, but then things begin to happen in your life and you go, well, that went out the window. And of course, with the law, if you mess it up, one, you're guilty of all of it, right? And so some people have believed that the gospel is the law 2.0. You know what law 2.0 is? Like the gospel is something that it's an improvement on the law. It's like the law plus. You know, the gospel is the law plus, law 2.0. You know those versions of software that you get, right? 2.0, 3.0, right? The gospel is unique. In a sense, it didn't come from the law. It's apart from the law. It's something different. You see the point that Paul's making. It's like you see the law here and you try to keep it, but the law is just guilting you. Here's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and it's not like the law. It's unique. However, there's a paradox in that it says being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. So how can something be a part and yet witnessed by the law and the prophets? Very easily done. Put it like this. You read the Old Testament and you go, oh boy, man, this is, this is rough. You know, people, people are you know, condemned for this, guilty for that. People die. The law is there and people not keeping it. And boy, this is, this is quite unique. This is, this is heavy. Then you read the Gospels and you say, wow, this is amazing. This is, how, this is what God wanted. Of course, I get it now. This salvation comes not through the law, but through faith in Jesus. Then you go back to the Old Testament and guess what you'll find? Once you understand the gospel and the good news, the bad news and the good news, then you go back to the Old Testament. Now you find the gospel everywhere, meaning that it was witnessed. The law and the prophets bore witness that something good was coming. How do I know this? Does anyone have an Old Testament story that's so full of grace and mercy that you love? Anybody? I know, put you on the spot. You don't ever think. Exodus? Okay, think about the Exodus, right? Isn't that the gospel in itself where the lamb had to be slain and sprinkled or put on the doorpost? And then people, because they were slaves, they were complete slaves to Egypt, are redeemed or are exited out of Egypt into the promised land because of sheer grace. Sheer God's purpose and love for them was to forgive their sins and have them go through this uh, this passage through the blood of the lamb, through the water, and into the promised land. It's totally the gospel because I could see how Jesus is involved in that. The blood of the lamb, Jesus, the Messiah, the gospel is presented through the Exodus. Another story, this is my favorite one. Uh, one of my favorite ones is Abraham and Isaac. And he goes up to Mount Moriah and he, God tells him, sacrifice your son. Oh boy, that's, the, that's heavy law. Right? This is before the law, but that's heavy Go sacrifice your sons. And you go up there, and he goes up, and he's carrying some wood on his back, and they're gone for three days. And he goes up to Mount Moriah, and he's about to plunge the knife into his son, which his son was not a little kid, by the way. He was probably in his 30s, more than likely late 20s, early 30s. So Isaac was a willing offering. He was willing to lay down 
his life because God told Abraham to do it. And before he plunges his knife, the angel of the Lord stops him. That Abraham, I know now that you love me. Don't harm the lad. Don't harm the man, the boy. God now turns his attention to Abraham and he says, Abraham, look into that thicket and there is a ram. And there's a ram. Abraham says, now the Lord provided himself, Jehovah Jireh, has provided himself a lamb, has provided a sacrifice. And they sacrificed the lamb instead of, was actually a ram, which is about a, a year old lamb. And they sacrificed the ram instead of Isaac. Well, did you see the gospel there? Right? A father gives up his son, but his son is not totally sacrificed because God intervenes and substitutes Isaac for a lamb, a ram. And after three days, the sacrifice is made, and they come down the hill rejoicing. And on that hill was where the temple of, um, the temple of Israel was built. So here's the gospel again. So you see the law and the prophets have built in as a witness the fact what the New Testament says. So the New Testament is in the old, but it's concealed in a way that you don't quite get it right away. But once you know the gospel, then you go back and you go, oh, yeah, look at this. Look at this. Look at Jonah. Look at Isaiah. And it's all there. This is what Paul is saying, being a witness by the law and the prophets. So it's a great paradox, but it's quite amazing is that God will accept now people Apart from the law. That means that somebody could be a lawbreaker and God would accept that person on the basis of righteousness. Ooh, interesting, isn't it? But how can a person be righteous apart from the law? We have an answer to that question, right? Because it says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, here it is. Prepositions are important. Prepositions are important. What are prepositions? Like uh, in, for, right? How about this preposition? Through. The preposition through. Through what? Through faith. Another big word. Highlight it. Mark it down. Share it. Through faith. Now, what is the difference between by faith and through faith? What is the difference between by faith and through faith? Because we are not saved by faith. We are not saved by faith. We are saved through faith. This is an important thing. We are not saved by faith. We're saved through faith. Everybody okay with that one? Just make sure you read it, and I'm not misguiding you in any way. That's what it says. Through faith. What's the difference? The difference is very important. You can be saved through faith. And what that means, and I'll illustrate it like this. This is a word for faith. Pisteos or pisteos, depending on the case endings. Faith. If I tell you, do you believe that I exist? All right, do you believe that? Okay. That's believing that I exist, right? That's believing in me, in a sense of I exist. That's right. You see me there. Hi, Susan. Yeah. Uh, now, that's believing that I exist, right? Do you believe in me? Do you believe in me? It's different, isn't it? Because you can believe that. Yeah, sometimes. That's good. Do you believe I exist? Easy. Do you believe in me? That's something of a test, isn't it? How can you prove that you believe in me? 
I can give you one test. Get in the car with me. You believe in me? I'll take you on a ride, right? <laughs> um, let me watch over your money. I will watch over your money for the rest of your life. Make sure it gets into the right investments and things like that. People are looking at me cross-eyed now going like, you don't believe in me. That's the thing, right? You have doubts. You believe that I exist. Sure, I see you, as Susan pointed out. But you don't believe in me totally because you don't, wouldn't trust me with certain things, right? Like, I wouldn't trust you with my kids. I wouldn't trust you with my money. I wouldn't trust you with my, you know, my life in, your car, in the car, right? I'm a good driver. That's not the point. The idea is it's different, isn't it, that you believe that somebody exists and you believe in someone. It's different, and that's what the word through faith is all about. Because people believe that Jesus exists. I can give you a statement of faith, and you can check out the boxes. And all you tell me is that you believe that. That's all you did. Here's a statement of faith. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yep. you believe that he's your Lord? Yep. Do you believe this? You believe? Yep, 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 yep. That. Check, 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 check. I'm a Christian. No. You believe that. But that doesn't mean you believe in Jesus. Different, isn't it? So what does this through faith mean? Well, best example I can think of this morning was the train track. You ever seen the train track? And they have these, what they call couplings. And the couplings actually hook on the car to the motor, to the, to the, to the train, the locomotive. Now, does the, coupling, um, does the coupling make the train go? Do you need the coupling to go? Yeah. The power is in the locomotive. The locomotive is going to go. And the carts don't have to go. What can make the cart go? The coupling. The coupling is faith. Through the coupling, you can hook on to the power of the locomotive. Through faith, you can hook on to what our faith is based on, Jesus. It's through faith. Now, the coupling alone cannot make you go, but the coupling hooked on to the power, that's what makes you go. You see the difference? But the coupling needs to be there. Otherwise, forget it. The, car, the, the locomotive is going to go, and you'll be left behind. The coupling hooks on to the... The faith, coupling, hooks onto the power, Jesus, salvation, and you go. Now, many people have couplings, but they're coupled to the wrong thing. They're coupled to the church. They're coupled to their good works. They're coupled to a person. Their, their couplings is it's hooked onto someone else or something else. Through faith, the coupling needs to be in Christ, hooked onto Christ and remain in Christ and be hooked onto Christ as he goes and we go with him. Otherwise, it is just simply believing that. And believing that, my friend, will never save you. Believing that will never save you. Believing in, and that's what the Bible always says, he who believes in me, Jesus says, right? Believing in him, he who believes in me. See, it's important because people would think, I just have to believe that. That makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. It's believing in coupled to him and letting him go and let well not letting him go letting go and letting him take you through faith very very important if you're rattled by that that's good because it is what the bible points out we have to 
realize that some things in the Bible we assume and presume that maybe they weren't right. There's a coupling in your life, and that needs to be hooked on through faith in Jesus. You don't let go of that coupling because that word, I didn't bring that. Oh, maybe I did. No, I didn't. Okay. That also, that word means faithfulness. Coupling, faithfulness, faith, staying on. Don't let go of Jesus through faith. Now, let's keep going. Through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. For all those who believe. So his righteousness is now available to sinners through faith. Coupling onto Jesus. That will make you righteous apart from the law. Apart from the law. So believing in Jesus has more than just believing that. I'll give you a couple of examples of faith from the Old Testament. Maybe it'll help if it's confusion. Will that be all right? Okay. In the Old Testament, nobody answers, so I'll just do it. All right. In the Old Testament, you had the story of Moses looking on to the battlefield. And God takes him up to this battlefield, and he looks on. Pastor, where are you going with this battlefield about faith? And they're fighting the Amalekites, the Amaleks. And as the fighting's going on, God tells them, raise your hands up. Lift up your hands and pray. And when he lifted his hands up, Israel prevailed. But then, like anything, gravity takes over, and Moses' hands became weary and tired, it says, and his hands began to droop down, and Israel began to lose. So they needed to keep his hands up. How can you keep your hands up? You get a good brother like her, and you get a good brother like Aaron, and they kept the hands up. And you see the picture. You've seen those paintings of the hands up. What does the Bible use for that word? Remain steady. So they steadied Moses' hands, her and Aaron. They use the word faith. The Bible uses the word faith to keep up and steady his hands. You see how I didn't use the word for, like, it wasn't a word for knowledge. Like, oh, Moses just believed. No, it actually was an action involved. The other was in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, where God is angry at the people because the men have been divorcing their wives unjustly, and they have taken on other wives. And it says, you have failed to keep your vow. You have failed to keep your vow, and you have done wrong to the wife of your youth. And it says, you have, you have failed to maintain, and the word is faith. You have failed to maintain faith, meaning the faithfulness of the marriage was a picture of their faith to God, meaning that as long as they remained in marriage, they were being faithful to their spouse, they were being faithful to God. And so those are pictures of faith that the Bible gives, illustrations. You go, oh, yeah, I know what that is like. I'm married. As long as I stay married, there's faithfulness involved, Right. And that is the same thing for God. It's faithfulness to God. That is the word for faith. It's the word for faithfulness. Through faith, maintaining, coupling together with Jesus. You're coupled with your wife, right? I hope you are. You're coupled. Don't let go of that coupling, right? And it'll go far. Well, and faith is the same thing. Well, let's keep going because now we're introduced to another thing. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. Uh, For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So we have a couple of words that we need to really define. It's the word justified. 
and it's the word grace. Now, the problem with the, or, or the, the, the need for this, I should say, is because there's a problem. Do you notice the problem in verse 23? All have sinned. All have sinned. Therefore, the righteousness of God through faith needs to be presented to all because all have sinned. The, the problem is universal. The problem is not localized. The problem is not for just one person or one people or one group. It's all. All have sinned. Therefore, all need redemption, salvation, grace. And so because everybody has sinned, it doesn't matter how much they have sinned. It says all have sinned. It's like this. Um, if you go to visit somebody in prison, they're all in prison. There are different degrees of criminals in that prison. There are different degrees of charges in that prison. There's different degrees of crimes. This person might have been a real hardcore criminal. This person is still maybe petty, petty criminal. But are they all in prison? Yes. It didn't matter if they're serving 30 years or 100 years or 15 years. They're all criminals. They've all broken the law. Correct? All right. That is what the Bible is trying to tell us is when it comes to sin, people make distinctions, right? People make distinctions. Well, I've sinned a little. I've sinned a lot. I've sinned more than you. I've sinned less than you. There is distinctions. With God, there is no distinctions, right? That's what verse 22 ends like that. For all those who believe, for there's no distinctions. There's no distinction in sin. God says all have sinned. No matter if you sin one time or a hundred times, you're still a prisoner of sin. All have sinned, therefore it's available to all, so all can believe. You see, you see the point there is, if all have sinned, all must have the opportunity to believe. All have sinned, all have to believe. Or at least all have presented with the opportunity to believe. Because God wants to save them all. Because the problem is big. The problem is universal. So everybody has sinned. Everybody's in prison. There's no distinction, right? And Paul says they're falling short of the glory of God. One inch or one mile, you still fell short. If you're jumping through a chasm, if you're jumping through, you know, jumping in a chasm, and you got to get across the other side, right? Let's say you're one of those daredevil guys and you want to, you know, extreme sports. And you got to jump through this mountain and there's a chasm and you got to jump through it. And there's people have done this, by the way. There's like jumping contests and people jump and they land a mile short, maybe a couple hundred feet short. And then there are really good riders, and they ride, and they jump, and they fall one inch short. Did they all fall? Yep. It didn't matter if one fell one inch or one mile or 300 feet. It didn't matter. They all fell. That's kind of painful, but they all fell. It's the same thing in the scriptures. All have sinned. All falling short. No matter if you tried hard, you still fell short. No matter if you didn't try at all, you still fell short. So there's no room for boasting. We all have sinned. All are guilty. That is why we're introduced to this verse 24, being justified as a gift. God has to gift it now because no one can deserve it because all have sinned. No one's good enough because all are a mixed bag. God has to offer it as a sin, as, a, as, as grace, as a gift by his grace. And the word grace there, people have misconstrued it in so many different ways irresistible force, something, you know, just something that is absolutely not in Scripture. It is the word for kindness. It's simply the word for kindness. Wouldn't you want God to be kind to you? Yeah. Wouldn't you want your husband to be kind to you? Yeah. 
You want your wife to be kind to you. Well, there it is. Kindness of God. Sometimes it's called gift, which is the same word that is used there in verse 24. Gift as a gift, as a kindness. God just wants to be kind to you. And he offers it because he is kind. And he says his grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. So why are we all, um, because we're falling short of the glory of God, there's three things that happen to us because of this word right here, sin. One is the penalty of sin. Okay, when you sin, there's penalties for it. Second, there is a power that you are under that power. And thirdly, that sin pollutes you. And that sin, sin makes you dirty. So there's a penalty of sin, the power of sin. You ever notice you couldn't stop sinning? You just kept going. There's the power of sin. You're a slave to sin. And finally, the pollution of sin, which makes you dirty before God. Penalty. Power, pollution, OPs, makes it easy. Penalty, power, pollution. Well, let's see how God deals with it because we're introduced to three terms now. First one, justification, comes from the law term, meaning that if you go to a court in the first century and you stood before the judge and he said, you stand here because of this crime, you're either going to be guilty or you will be justified. And so if there's enough charges they would call you guilty. And you, uh, it was like a dock. It was like you'd be in this dark place, and then you'd be called into this light, and you stand for the judge, and light will be on you, and then uh, you'll be sentenced. Guilty. There's enough charges. Now, if the person was brought into the light and he was justified, means that there was something, the case maybe was mishandled or whatever it was, and that person will not be called innocent. They would be called justified. That's different, isn't it? Maybe that person did it. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. But there's not enough evidence, so we're going to have to call him justified. Something has happened. But there's where the Bible takes a unique case. It's the fact that because all have sinned, there's no, everybody's guilty. We will stand in the dock. We will stand before God as judge saying, you're done. You're guilty. We will be judged. However, the justification has to do with something interesting. God is willing to acquit you. God is willing to take your case now and say, if you come to me now with your case, I will justify you through faith in Jesus. Not through the law, through faith. Through faith in Jesus, you could be acquitted. You could be justified. And the word has a beautiful English connotation, meaning just as if you have never done it. Just as if you have never done it. Meaning a person can stand before God and through faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed, given to you, and God can say, he won't say innocent because you did it. He won't say, don't worry about it. Because he can't. He's just. But he can say justified. He will acquit you. He will justify the sinner, not the sin. We've said that many, many times, right? We justify the sinner, meaning the sinner can stand before God with the righteousness of God revealed. And if that person has faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, then God can take that righteousness of Jesus, gives it to the person, and he can stand before God as justified, just as if he'd never did it. 
Now we know we did it. And people remind us all the time we did it, right? Maybe. And now God says, you didn't. You didn't do it. And you can argue with God about it, but he says, you didn't do it. You're free to go. That's the justification part. Now, that is the penalty of sin. I am justified from the penalty of sin. But something he does more, because he goes into another word, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now God does not use a law court term, a law from the law. He uses a marketplace, meaning if you went to the market in the first century, you went to Rome or Jerusalem, wherever it may be, and you would find things that are there. And um, unfortunately, in those places, you would find slaves. Slaves. And in the marketplace, they would sell people. Awful thing. Thank God it doesn't happen now, does it? It still happens. Mainly in Muslim countries, but you could... It's an awful thing to say, but you can actually buy a human being today if you go to Muslim countries and buy them, mainly African slaves. But if you were to go to the first century or 21st century and go to a marketplace and you could say, I would like to purchase that person there, then you would pay a price and that person would be sold to you. You owe them now and then you can set them free. You can let them go. You can, you're a human being. You can be free now. And that is exactly the word that was used. First century word, Biden a 21st century, but first century word, redemption, meaning that there was someone that was in a slave position, someone that was absolutely destitute of any Salvation, redemption, slave to sin, the power of sin. Couldn't get out of it. A slave had no rights. They were sold. They were basically property. And then Jesus comes in one day and he says, I would like to purchase you. And I would like to pay for you. And Then he goes through the process of redemption, which he's going to get in a moment. But God is prepared to redeem those who are in the slave marketplace. So meaning that the only people that can be redeemed are sinners. Amen? Grab a hold of your heart there, because God came to do that. Remember, Jesus says, for this reason I have come, to give my life as a ransom. A ransom for you, a ransom for many. It's a good and faithful saying, Paul said, that Jesus has come into the world to save righteous people. That's right. Good, you guys are sharp. To save sinners, in which you qualify, because we have read Romans 1, 2, and part of 3, and you have drilled it in our head, Pastor, that we're all guilty and we feel really bad about it. But now, here's the good news. He has come to save people just like you. People that have blown it. People that have messed up. People that have screwed up and didn't know what they were doing. Or in, in innocence didn't know what they were doing. Or in rebellion knew what they were doing. And God says, I am going to forgive you. The righteousness of God applied to you through faith in Jesus. Justification, just as if you never did it. Redemption, you were a slave. And now I bought you which kind of gives to another side note. If he bought us, who do we belong to now? Jesus. We have basically just transfer ownership. Slaves to sin, owned by sin, owned by the devil in his kingdom. Transfer of rights, and now we belong to him. That's for another time, another story. But just think about that. We now belong to Jesus. We really don't really belong to ourselves. I know we behave like that. We really are part of Jesus' kingdom. We really belong to him. He is now our redemptor. He's now the one who redeems us. And that is a marketplace, a law marketplace. Well, keeps going. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Again, through faith. Don't miss those things. 
not by faith, through faith, that uh, this demonstrate, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Introduction to another term. It's not a court term. It is not a marketplace term. It is a temple term. It is a religious term. Propitiation. Propitiation. And you go, Pastor, I don't know what that means. Well, if you were in First John with us, you could probably come up and tell us because we talked about it a lot. Propitiation. Three explanations that helps us understand because people argue about what the word really means. I'll give you the the argument, and you kind of determine which one you like. One translation says expiation. Does everybody ha- anybody have that translation that says expiation? No? Okay. So you have the Revised Standard Version. Expiation. It means to wipe away or to clean the dirt. Wipe away, clean the dirt. And um, basically to remove a debit. To remove a debit from your ledger book. Anybody account? Any accountants here? Okay. Expiation. That's what it means. Another word that is sometimes translated is, like in my Bible, propitiation. And what that word simply means is to turn away someone's anger and wrath away from you unto another person. Propitiation. To turn anger away. You are propitiating your father by doing something in return. Maybe your dad's angry with you, and then you propitiate, right? You do something to turn away his anger. Maybe you wash his car or maybe you buy him lunch or something. I don't know what you did to your dad, but, you know, to avoid his anger, you, uh, you know, propitiation, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying God is like your father. I'm not saying that. I'm saying propitiation. That's what it means, to turn away someone's anger. The third, does everybody have that one, propitiation? Most people, okay. The other translation is mercy seat, mercy seat. That is an interesting translation because it's closer to what it's trying to say. The mercy seat. And for that mercy seat, we'd have to go to something like the book of Leviticus because it's not a New Testament term. It is an Old Testament term, and it is the term for the... I don't think I brought it. There it is. It is the Ark of the Covenant. You ever watch Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. Old movie. Well presented in this regard. Fictional story, but well presented in this regard. The mercy seat was the lid that went over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, is, it was a box, basically made out of wood, laden with gold, covered with gold, and it had two angels at the very top. And, and Steven Spielberg did a good job, actually, to what the Bible describes it as. And the two cherubims were, were facing each other, and there would be a lid there would be a lid on this, on this Ark of the Covenant. It can only be carried by certain Levites on a pole. We read that in Samuel. How I think we taught it here one time. And that mercy seed, if you take the lid off of it, you will find the Ten Commandments, the tablets. You would find the manna that fell from heaven, and you will find Aaron's rod that budded in the Old Testament. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the book of Leviticus tells us that the priests would go to the mercy seat and he will splatter, he will make atonement, he will splatter blood onto the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is October 8th and 9th this year, 9th and 10th, 9th and 10th, okay, 9th and 10th of this year, the, the Jews will commemorate or celebrate the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now, it's interesting, they can't do it anymore 
Biblically, they couldn't do it anymore because there's no sacrifices in the Temple Mount right now. There's no sacrifice, no spilling of blood. There's nothing. But the Bible does tell us that at one time, the high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, only time away from everybody. Nobody could see what he was doing. He would go in with a container of blood, and he would sprinkle on the mercy seat blood. And that blood would do a couple of things. Well, number one, it will satisfy that God was angry at sin, and it would satisfy God's anger at that time. And he would also cover the sins of the people for one year because they would have to do it again next year. And they would have to do it over and over again. So for one year, they were covered. And that was splatter on the mercy seat. And that's the word that Paul uses here, propitiation, the mercy seat. Jesus Christ becomes now our mercy seat. So a temple term, a religious term in which God basically uses blood once again and uses a sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament. Now he uses the sacrifice of his own son and the blood of his own son, and he sprinkles it on the people. He sprinkles it on the people. And it says that that propitiation in his blood through faith, you coupled yourself to that. You hold on to that fact that Jesus paid a penalty and sacrifice for your sins that he redeemed you from the marketplace of sin and he removed the power of sin in your life and he has now removed that sin expiation he has turned away the wrath of god propitiation and now he sits as the mercy seat in which the blood was shed the mercy seat on that cross jesus justified us redeemed us and made atonement for us. The word atonement is a beautiful word. It simply means at one meant. Atonement. It's an English word. It's not really, it's, it's a word that Tyndale used in his translation. At one meant. Atonement. A person that comes through faith in Jesus, that comes to him, can now have at one meant with God, can be one with God, can come close to God, and can be one with him, coupled through faith in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It's an amazing fact. This little verse is just, all these prepositions are just so packed with insight and meaning, right? Because now it says in verse 26, For this demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of those who have or those who have, or has, or the one who has faith in Jesus. Those who have faith in, in Jesus. Not that, in Jesus. Meaning you must be coupled to him. You must be at one minute with him. Because of his atoning sacrifice, it's brought you near. That person, God has demonstrated his righteousness. Meaning that when Christ died in our place, he substituted, God substituted your lack of righteousness for his own righteousness and your sin exchanged for his sinless life. And his sinless life went to you and your sins were upon him. And that's why Paul could say, he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And if you don't get a lump in your throat when you hear that, Check your pulse. 
Because that means, my friend, God has said to you, you are right with me. And my son was punished. My son was guilty of what you did. See, the one who didn't deserve to be punished was Jesus. He knew no sin, never did it. Yet he's the one who becomes the propitiation. He's the one that now bears our sin. He takes your fault. Basically, he is to blame. He is to blame for what you did. How's that fair? Because it says here that God is just and the justifier of those who has faith in Jesus because God's perfection is going to be shown here. The perfection is going to be shown through the gospel. What is the perfection of God or the uh, to show you that God is perfect or God is approved is the fact that God can do two things without violating himself. He could be just, be fair, and he could also be loving. Meaning a person who sinned has to pay the price. But yet God has to let you go because he wants to forgive you. How can he punish you and forgive you at the same time? If he punishes you, he would be fair, but not loving. If he just let you off the hook, he would be loving, but not fair, because that means God approves of sin, and he lets everybody go. And that's how people view God sometimes, one or the other. But the Bible says he's both. He is both just and a justifier. How can he be just and justify people? A justifier of people, meaning has to let them go. He could be just by punishing sin, and he could be justifier or a loving God by relief, by forgiving sinners. And he does it only in one place, my friend, the cross. The cross of Jesus does not demonstrate God's love only. People look at the cross and go, that's a loving act. Actually, the word love here is not used. Why isn't the word love here used? Because it's presenting something, a unique angle of the cross that we fail to mention sometimes, is the cross is the righteousness of God. God is right by forgiving you. And God is right by punishing Jesus. Because in punishing Jesus for what you did, his wrath towards sin is satisfied. God is angry at sin. God does not approve of sin. But did you notice where it says God has forbearance in the past in the past he had forbearance meaning that god was willing to overlook sin he was willing to overlook sin in fact paul tells that to the to the athenians he says in times past god he actually uses the word for wink god winks at sin doesn't mean god like was okay with it it means that god was patient in the past his patient was saying i can't judge sin as i ought to I am going to let you go. And you can think of the Old Testament passages of people that sinned grievously and God didn't kill them. God actually forgave them without the cross. Well, how can he do that? He was, his forbearance was showing patience because at one point, at that place right there, God was going to deal with the sins of Abraham and the sins of David. He gave them credit, you would say. <laughs> He gave them credit, extended credit, by not judging their sin because he knew that he would judge sin on the cross. And then he looks at you here in the 
in the present, and he now extends that to you. The cross is extended to you in forgiveness and says, I can now forgive your sins because in time past I dealt with them. So the Old Testament saints got it in credit. We got it. We have to go back to the cross to find forgiveness. But either way, God justifies the sinner at the cross of Jesus. That's the gospel, my friend. The gospel, my friend, is God is just and a justifier of those who come through faith in Jesus. Did you notice that it's available for all, but only applicable to those who come through faith in Jesus, those who have coupled their lives through faith in Jesus. Not that you believe that Jesus is, but you believe in him. You're trusting him. You're trusting in him. For what are you trusting him for? You say everything. That's kind of an all, all long term, right? But do you trust him in your salvation? Do you trust him in, your, in the fact that your eternal life hinges on the person of Jesus? Your eternal destiny hinges on this event in time, in history, in which God said to you, Frank, Roy, or anybody else, right? I will call you righteous. If you let me deal with your case today, I will justify you, I will redeem you, and I will atone, I will expiate, I will remove my wrath over you, and I will give you expiation, removal of all sin, because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And he will no longer pass over our sins. It says now he's dealt with sin. Sin times past, he passed over. He says, not yet, not yet, not yet. Now God says, I dealt with sin. At the cross. And that's where you and I need to go all the time. The cross of Jesus. And that's the gospel, my friend. At the cross is where he punished sin, and therefore the offer has to be accepted. The offer has to be accepted. God extends it. And like any remedy, has to be consumed, has to be yours. It can't be your wife's faith, can't be your husband's faith, can't be your children's faith, can't be your mother's faith. You have a coupling. That coupling needs to be attached to Jesus and his work of redemption for you. So remember those things. Justification, redemption, propitiation. Sounds like big terms, right? But it simply means he has justified you just as if you've never did it. He has redeemed you from sin because you were a slave to sin and now he's bought you, not with the blood of bulls and goats, with the blood of Jesus, and he has extended that mercy and grace to you because you needed it by Jesus removing all your sins on the cross, and then that coupling fits right in. And now, let him take you for a ride. Faithfulness in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are so thankful for your kindness this morning. It's hard to believe, Lord, that anybody would refuse to come through faith. But yet, Lord, there are so many who in many different forms and different ways would deny this, would not adhere to, would refuse and rebuff and not want to come to you. It's hard to imagine, Lord, that 
They are like that, but yet, Lord, I was like that too. But you had mercy and you had grace and you had patience. Lord, I pray for our group here, for those who couldn't make it today, for those who, uh, Lord, are ill today, for those who are listening in, that they would make their coupling in Jesus, that they would attach themselves to him and him only. And through faith, they would have salvation, the righteousness of God, the right standing with God in Christ Jesus. Lord, all these words are important. Help us to remember them, help us to apply them, and help us to live by them. In Jesus, our Lord, amen.